Welcome and thanks for listening to the iFormRx podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. This is Stuart Haynes, and if you are a fan of the iFormRx podcast, please do me a favor and like or rate this podcast in your favorite podcast app. And be sure to tell your colleagues about iFormRx. We don't have an advertising budget, and all of our content is produced by volunteers, so we rely on word of mouth to reach our audience. If you are not already a member of iFormRx, I encourage you to sign up today. It's free to health professionals. Just visit our website at iFormRx.org and click on the log in or join in the top navigation bar. Payment for clinical services, provider status legislation, and insurance reform are among the most common topics of discussion at professional meetings and on the ACCP Ambulatory Care Listserv. And you'd think that getting paid for the services that pharmacists provide would be pretty straightforward, but alas, there are lots of pieces to the payment puzzle. So that's why I've invited today's guest, Michael Murphy, to write a commentary for iFormRx and to participate in this podcast to talk about payment for pharmacists' patient care services. Dr. Murphy is Assistant Professor of Clinical Pharmacy at The Ohio State University College of Pharmacy, and he's advisor for state government affairs with the American Pharmacists Association. Michael's position is truly unique because his practice site, so to speak, is with a national pharmacy organization, and his job is to advance pharmacy practice through legislative and regulatory change at the state level. That's not to say that Michael isn't involved in advocacy efforts at the federal level, too. Indeed, he's actively involved in helping the Future of Pharmacy Coalition, to introduce and pass legislation that would recognize pharmacists as providers under the Medicare Act. However, most of the action over the past few years has been at the state level, and indeed, pharmacists' scope of practice and insurance regulations are defined by state laws, not federal. And if you are not already aware, Ohio has been at the forefront of some of the most progressive legislative and regulatory changes in recent years. So I'm eager to learn from Dr. Murphy so that we can replicate these successful efforts here in Mississippi. So Michael, it is great to have you on the iFormerX podcast today. Great. Thank you so much, Stuart. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So before we get into the specifics about payment for pharmacists, patient care services, I'm wondering how you became interested in advocacy work and how your faculty position at Ohio State became co-funded by APHA. And you've got a pretty unique story, and I think many of our listeners would be interested in hearing more about your career path. Yeah, I, I would love to talk about that. So I've always been interested in health policy and, and politics, but didn't get involved in it officially until I started my time as a student pharmacist and participate in things like the Ohio Pharmacists Association Student Legislative Day and the American Pharmacists Association Summer Leadership Institute and participate in different advocacy efforts through professional organizations really found that there was a lot of opportunity for students and pharmacists to share their perspective on these issues and that they really had a lot to say that could be beneficial for our elected leaders to better understand the role and value of the pharmacist. One of the things that is 
an unfortunate reality is that a lot of our elected officials don't really have a good understanding about what pharmacists do. So through these volunteer experiences, I started to get bitten by the bug of advocacy and wanting to get more involved. And once I was completing my ambulatory care focused residency, I started to see the impact of the current healthcare system. I really started to see that there was just so much opportunity for improvement. And I wanted to get more involved professionally in my career to see what I could do to help to improve the system so that pharmacists can provide needed care in a sustainable method as the most accessible healthcare professional. I had the opportunity to collaborate with Ohio State University in a fellowship position that was really focused on health policy and advocacy, but also worked in partnership with the Ohio Pharmacists Association. They had recently passed provider status or payment for services under Medicaid in Ohio, and they were looking for collaborations with different organizations in the state to help in the implementation process. Stu Beatty was leading the efforts in Ohio, as well as Antonio Chacha. And I worked in collaboration with folks like Ernie Boyd, who was the exec at OPA at the time, as well as Miriam Shah Ojeda. And through the completion of my fellowship, got to work and really get some hands-on experience in this implementation of policy, as well as some of the regulatory changes that needed to happen after the legislation was passed and just completely fell in love. So as my fellowship was coming to a close, there was an opportunity for a similar co-funded relationship between Ohio State and APHA. And when I saw that opportunity, I grabbed it and, and didn't let go. And now feel very thankful to get to work with incredible folks across the country on different policy priorities that are really focused on increasing patient access to care provided by pharmacists. So that's that's a little bit about my story so far. Excellent. Well, thank you, Michael. So let's talk about the commentary you wrote for iFormerX. It's entitled Top 10 Things Every Clinician Should Know About Payment for Pharmacist Services. And I encourage everyone to read the commentary too. But two issues that you talk about in the commentary are the distinctions between independent billing and collaborative or incident to billing. Can you tell us a bit more about these two different models of payment and the potential pros and cons of each? When it comes to these two different models of billing, there's several pros and cons to both. And right now, in the current state, the most opportunity for most pharmacists across the country to bill is through incident to arrangements between pharmacists and other healthcare professionals that do have direct billing capabilities like physicians or nurse practitioners. However, as we really look to the future, there's a a lot of opportunity and focus to really align how pharmacists bill for their services comparable to any of those other healthcare professionals. And they do that through being the direct enrolled provider with the health plan, whether it be public or private health plans, and have the capability of billing directly for their services. But there are lots of opportunities right now through incident to billing arrangements, and we need to work on improving those current arrangements and some of the rules around them, while also striving for being the direct enrolled provider. In general, when it comes to incident to billing arrangements, 
These are traditionally through Medicare. There are specific rules that pharmacists have to follow when billing for services. Generally, there has to be direct supervision, which means that the overseeing physician or the overseeing provider that does have the ability to directly bill for services needs to be immediately accessible to the pharmacist. So they don't generally have to be in the same room when providing care, but they generally do need to be within the same physical location. So while that can work very well for pharmacists in an ambulatory care setting, it may be more challenging for pharmacists that are practicing in other outpatient settings, like community pharmacies that may not have that overseeing provider directly on site. Another restriction is the limitations on certain billing codes that pharmacists can use. Right now, pharmacists in a majority of instances are limited to bill a low-level outpatient billing code. And this is used regardless of the level of complexity of care that the pharmacist is providing and can really undervalue the pharmacist by saying you can only bill this low-level code that's associated with a low level of reimbursement. There are definitely more information that I would recommend pharmacists to review that are within Medicaid services manuals, but those are two of the notable restrictions that come to mind. So there's definitely opportunities for reform within the incident two models. Within the direct reimbursement model, pharmacists would enroll directly as the provider of care, and bill for services comparable to any other healthcare professional. While that is the ideal situation, there is a lot of advocacy and change that needs to happen to really get us there in all of the different levels of health insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, and commercial insurance. Well, I think a lot of pharmacists naively believe that achieving provider status will magically solve all of our problems and payment for services will begin to flow once the Medicare Act is amended to include pharmacists. And while no doubt getting the Medicare Act amended would would be a big step forward and would pave the way for many other reforms, it's not a magic bullet because healthcare services are paid for by several different stakeholder groups. And I'm hoping you can explain why provider status and payment reform are actually two separate and distinct issues. Yeah, this is a great point that you're making. So typically, when we hear provider status, depending on who you're talking to, you might be hearing different things. Sometimes provider status means scope of practice. Sometimes it means just means being recognized as a healthcare provider. And under the Social Security Act, which is where they have the specific legislation around how Medicare functions, that's what we're striving for. We're striving for being recognized as a provider within the section of the Social Security Act that lists out Medicare providers under Medicare Part B. But it is also being used at the state level. And if there's not specific references to the healthcare provider within Medicaid sections of law at the state level, as well as commercial insurance sections of state law, then there may not be a tie back to payment. And just being recognized as a provider alone is nice, 
But what we're really striving for is payment for the services that we're providing to our patients. You've heard me talk about three of these primary issues where we need to see change happen at the federal level, at the state level, and within the private sector. At the federal level, we're really focused on reform within Medicare Part B. And as I explained, this would recognize pharmacists as providers and allow for the reimbursement of their services under the medical benefit of Medicare. After that would go into effect, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services will have to go through a regulatory process, write rules, make specific updates to actually implement this. But making any change federally is challenging. And there's a lot of advocacy needed from pharmacists across the country, as well as patients and other healthcare professionals to make that happen. And that's why we're also focused on making changes at the state level. And we've seen a lot of progress there, specifically within Medicaid programs. Many states are moving through the process of passing state legislation that recognizes pharmacists as providers within sections of law related to how Medicaid programs are administered. The Medicaid programs generally, after the passage of that law, have to go through some regulatory and rule writing process and then work through the implementation process. This can be things like updating fee schedules for how pharmacists are going to be paid and the specific billing codes that they're going to be using, updating provider manuals to include pharmacists, updating credentialing pathways so that pharmacists can go through the pathway of being credentialed as medical providers. But we're also seeing a lot of change that's happening within the commercial sector. Now, I will note that this does not necessarily require legislative change. Commercial health insurance plans have the ability to decide who they want to enroll as medical providers, whether it be a physician, a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, or a pharmacist. And they can independently make the change to add pharmacists as a provider. But we are seeing that some commercial health plans are not making that change. And because of that, we've seen some states that have taken their own action to pass laws to mandate the reimbursement of pharmacists for their services. This is usually happening within insurance sections of state law. So this is a big question. There's a lot here, but there are really many different opportunities for pharmacists to advocate for these changes. You also talk about potential barriers to payment for pharmacists, patient care services in your commentary. Even if pharmacists are designated in their state as healthcare providers and, and payment for services are guaranteed under state law, there's still several logistical issues that need to be considered. One of the things that we've seen that has been challenging for many pharmacists is different requirements that are being put in place by either Medicaid programs or commercial health insurance programs that make it more challenging for either pharmacists to participate in those programs or for patients to participate in the programs and receive care from their pharmacist. In general, we want to see as limited restrictions as possible. There are a few common restrictions that we've seen implemented across these programs, and some are more burdensome in some practice settings as compared to others. One that comes to mind is the requirement that pharmacists render and provide services under collaborative practice agreements. Now, many pharmacists practicing within 
ambulatory care settings may have a collaborative practice agreement that really helps how efficiently care is delivered to their patients. Depending on the terms and state law around collaborative practice agreements, that could be potentially challenging for pharmacists practicing in other outpatient settings, like community pharmacies, establishing collaborative practice agreements with physicians or nurse practitioners that may or may not be practicing in the same physical location. Other common barriers that we're seeing for pharmacists to participate is the requirement of a referral from a primary care practitioner prior to the rendering of services. This can really slow down how efficiently pharmacists can deliver care and really decreases the accessibility of pharmacists and the care that they're providing to their patients. In addition, other restrictions that are highlighted throughout the commentary, and one of the ones is the limited billing codes that pharmacists can use in many of these models. Oftentimes, we're seeing pharmacists being limited to only use lower-level billing codes, which can result in sustainability issues. So many barriers exist in the current models, but really just highlights how there's a lot of opportunity to increase accessibility to services being provided by pharmacists. Well, before we ramp up today, Michael, I'd like to end on a positive note. You mentioned in your commentary a few states where there are some legislative and regulatory victories in in recent years. So tell us about some of the great work that's been done out there and the lessons we all can learn from their lead. There are many states that I could talk about here. So just want to share a few examples of some of the really exciting things that we're seeing happen across the country. One state that comes to mind is Colorado. The Colorado Pharmacist Society has done truly incredible work over the past few years to really expand opportunities for pharmacists to bill for services, specifically under Medicaid. They've worked really hard to pass legislation and went through the regulatory process with their Department of Medicaid to ensure that pharmacists had the opportunities to bill for these services using some of the most progressive code sets that we've seen across the country. This really helps to align the level of care that pharmacists are providing with appropriate reimbursement for those services. Another state that comes to mind that's really exciting to see is Kentucky. The Kentucky Pharmacists Association went through the process, really focused on commercial health insurance in 2021 to pass legislation related to requiring reimbursement under commercial health plans. And over the past year and a half, they've been working through the implementation process, just recently announced in the fall of 2022 that Anthem, Blue Cross, and Blue Shield is going to begin enrolling pharmacists as medical providers and reimbursing them for their services. So hopefully this helps to showcase the value of care that pharmacists can provide. And some of these commercial health plans start to talk to each other in some other states and say, hey, you know what? We should start paying pharmacists for their services here. And the last state that I want to mention here is Wisconsin. Wisconsin passed legislation recently that would allow for the reimbursement of services under Medicaid. And what's novel about this program is that where we've talked about a lot of different restrictions and barriers to either pharmacists participating in programs or patients participating in programs, based off of the legislation that was passed in Wisconsin, those barriers don't exist. And as they're working through the implementation process, 
there is the possibility that this could become one of the most progressive programs reimbursing pharmacists for their services in the country. So I have to call out the Pharmacist Society of Wisconsin for their incredible advocacy and work as well with the academic institutions in the state in advocating for this legislation. And as they work through the implementation process, Wisconsin's going to be an exciting state to watch. Michael, this has been awesome, and I, I can't thank you enough for being on the iFormerX podcast today and for writing the commentary, Top 10 Things Every Clinician Should Know About Payment for Pharmacist Services. Well, tell us what you're doing in your practice and in your state. Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on our website, so be sure to sign in and leave a comment so we can all learn from each other's experiences. And lastly, I want to thank all the pharmacists who work for the Commission Corps of the U.S. Public Health Service. I think we all owe a debt of gratitude to the U.S. Public Health Service for guiding us through the pandemic over the past three years. Pharmacists in the U.S. Public Health Service play a vital role in assisting with public health emergencies, providing direct patient care in underserved communities, as well as reviewing, approving, and monitoring new drugs through their work with the FDA. The Public Health Service, particularly through the Indian Health Service, were the pioneers of the clinical pharmacy movement in ambulatory care settings back in the 1980s and 90s. And I think it's safe to say that collaborative practice models and comprehensive medication management wouldn't exist today if not for their ingenuity and perseverance. So if you are a student and you're not familiar with the U.S. Public Health Service and the important role that the men and women of the Commission Corps play, click on the links that we've provided below the written commentary on our website. Well, until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Music